Today is going to be our second message in our current preaching series entitled Intervention. If you could put the first slide up, thank you. For the purpose of this series, we defined an intervention as an occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address a critical issue. Now, while interventions are usually focused on an individual, for the purpose of our series, our focus will be on both us as individuals, but our lives also as being a part of his church, Jesus' body. The scriptural basis of our series, we said, is going to be the seven messages that are found in the letter uh, communicated to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And we began a couple weeks ago by saying that we believe we have an important message to share, that the Bible calls this message that we have been given to share the gospel, and that the word gospel simply means good news. And so we've been called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We want people to hear the good news. We want them to respond to the good news. We believe that our world desperately needs the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that. And so what we are saying in this series is this. If we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, this good news, we must begin by first hearing the message that God has for us, his church. And if we refuse to listen to, if we refuse to hear, to respond to the message that God by his Holy Spirit is communicating to us, his church, how can we ever expect our world to listen to the message that we are communicating to them? And so it's important for us to understand that our lives, how we live our lives, is every bit as important, who we are is every bit as important in communicating the good news as the words that we use to share the gospel. In fact, even more. And so there's no question we said a couple weeks ago as we started on this series that the book of Revelation is a unique book of the Bible, it's clear. It's very unique. There's no other book that's more misunderstood, more misrepresented, more miscommunicated than the book of Revelation. And so in our opening sermon, we, we began with a brief overview of trying to understand the book of Revelation and what it is. Today, we're going to be looking at the message to the first of seven churches that are referenced in chapters two and three, the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was located on the western or the west coast of Asia Minor. I showed you this map in the first sermon. It's the trade center. It was the trade center for the area. It had a great seaport, and it served as the hub for shipping goods all throughout Asia. Three major highways intersected, converged from the north, the east, and the south into Ephesus. The road that led from the ports to the city center was 35 feet wide and lined with pillars on either side, just announcing the prominence of the seaport and the trade center that the city was. A city of approximately 250,000 people, yet a local stadium could seat 25,000. 
Politically, it was considered a free city. And what that means is that even though it was under Roman rule, it was self-governed, which was the highlight of its day. Religiously, it was the center of worship of Artemis, the fertility god. The temple that was located in Ephesus at that time was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Thousands of priests and priestesses served there. Many of the the priestesses were dedicated to temple prostitution. And so the church in Ephesus was established in the midst of all of this by Aquila and Priscilla. And some of the pastors, as we read the New Testament, they they had an all-star list of pastors. They had been uh, pastored by Apollos. They had been pastored by Paul. They had been pastored by Timothy and by John. And so they'd had quite a list of all-star pastors through their time. This church was a light that was established in the midst of a city of moral deterioration and darkness. Now, our scripture for today is Revelation 2, 1 to 7. Mary read it a little earlier. Thank you for sharing that, Mary. And we're going to pick up from there in our message this morning. The the letter uh, to Ephesus actually follows a very interesting pattern. It begins with applause, praising what is good. And then it shifts to accountability, exposing problems that need attention. And then it ends with a call to action, what the church is called to do to turn things around in light of the accountability that that Jesus has made uh, known to them. So that's the pattern that we're going to follow this morning. We're going to start with the applause. We said in our opening sermon that apocalyptic literature, which we said is the primary genre of the book of Revelation, uses a lot of images and a lot of symbols in communicating its message. There are three right off the top here, one being the angel and another being uh, stars and another being lampstands. And so just for our information, uh, we see that, you know, Jesus is informing John that the vision that he's seeing, that the message is to go to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And so the word, you know, the, the word angel there is referring to the pastor or the leader or the elder in those days, the person responsible for the leadership. And so the leader is being addressed here as the means or the conduit which this message is going to go to the congregation. He uses the word stars, and the word stars is a reference to the messengers, his messengers, and he holds those messengers. The message is his message, and he's using his angelic messengers to communicate this message through John to this church. And he also uses the word lampstands, which the lampstands refer to uh, the churches themselves. The seven lampstands are the seven churches that spread the light of the good news in the midst of the darkness where they're located. And so he reminds John that he is present in the midst of each and every church. He is reassuring John of his presence, of his concern, of his awareness, of his ultimate control and leadership within all of these churches which are his body. And so in his awareness, there are some things that he applauds. He applauds their deeds. He applauds their hard work. He applauds their perseverance. The word deeds really simply just means 
the things they did, the activities that they were involved in, the efforts that they put forward to build the kingdom of God, to carry on the work that he gave them to do. And so he said, I'm aware of your deeds. I'm aware of what you're doing. Secondly, he says, I'm, I'm aware of your, of your hard work. The word work means to work to the point of weariness, of pain, to, to take a lot out of you, to sacrifice. And so they're not just doing tasks that are easy, that are, you know, that don't take a lot out of them. No, they're, they're busy. They're working to the point where it is costing them something. It is painful. It is sacrificial. It, it, they're tired. They're worn down because they're working so hard. They're not a lazy church. They're very active, very involved very busy doing the work of Jesus. Their work costs them something. And then finally, he said, I know, or next he says, I know your perseverance. The word perseverance means to, to literally to remain under, to endure hardship. They didn't run when it got tough. They didn't quit because, well, I signed up for this ministry and now it's, I, I got some questions or it's, it's a little harder than I thought or it's a little bigger than I thought I was committing to. And so, you know what? Like things are kind of not going really easy for me here, so I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. No, they kept going. They were willing to suffer. They kept going through the tough times serving the kingdom of God. This was not an easy time and place in history to live for Jesus. Folks, this is not the Bible Belt. These Christians are a new phenomena. They were misunderstood. They called themselves brothers and sisters, and for that, they were accused of, of incestuous behavior. Because they, they, they celebrated communion, which represented the body and blood of Jesus, they were accused of, of, of you know, being cannibals. They were considered to be unusual and weird and, and, and misunderstood. They didn't, they didn't participate in the emperor worship. They didn't, they didn't participate in the activities of, of worshiping Artemis. And so they, they were looked down upon, and life was hard for them. They lived by a different moral code, by a different set of standards that went against the mainstream of culture in their time. Often they were persecuted because they were misunderstood and they challenged the cultural standards. But despite the rejection, the ridicule, the misunderstanding, the persecution, these believers kept going. They persevere. And he applauds them and says, listen, not only that, but you cannot, you know, you can't even tolerate wicked men. Now, these wicked men were not the local pagans. They were not unbelievers. These wicked men that Jesus is referring to here are people who claim to be apostles. They claim to be apostles, but they were not. The word apostle in this context simply means sent ones. Sent ones. It's not a reference to the disciples who became the apostles or to Paul who went to great lengths to prove that he too belonged being called an apostle. That's not who it's referring to here. It's not referring to these main leaders in the early church. It was common in these times for apostles and teachers to travel around, come to a local church, claiming to be sent by God on divine mission 
to speak to the community of faith with a message. These sent ones. And these false teachers were deceptive. They were liars. They would exploit the church for their own benefit, for what they could take from the, the, from the people to propagate their false message. And Jesus is applauding the church in Ephesus because they're willing to stand up to these apostles and they're willing to confront those who claim to be divine sent ones but were not because the church was so important to them that they were going to protect it at any cost, even in the awkwardness of standing up to one who showed up saying they were from God when they knew, in fact, they weren't. It says the church despised these false teachers. Later, Jesus said that they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Hate's a strong word. I have a friend that says you, can only, you should only use the word hate for smoking and cancer. That's how, that's how heavy that, that word is. You know, and Jesus says, you hated the practices of the Nicolaitans just as I hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Jesus is saying we're at one here in our opinion and attitude of this behavior. Now, I want you to note, it doesn't say that the church in Jesus hated a group of people, the Nicolaitans. It says they hated their practices. Now, information about the Nicolaitans in history is limited, but we, what we do know from them is this, that, is that they tended to blend the worship of God with the worship of the temple practices and prostitution, bringing those two worlds together in what missionaries call syncretism and, uh, and watering down the truth. And so this church is going to have no part in compromising the integrity of the gospel. They stood their ground. Their applause. Secondly, there's accountability. Well, Jesus' knowledge of the church in emphasis brought applause for many things, his intimate knowledge of this church also revealed areas that needed to be confronted. And Jesus confronted them because he said they have left, they had forsaken their first love. Left or forsaken really simply means to, to let go, to leave behind, to abandon, willful neglect. And so I think the question that arises is this, what is this first love that Jesus is referring to here? What does he mean when he says they've left first love? Is he referring to the zeal that is so often associated with becoming a new believer? You know, when you first come to faith and you're, you're so in love with Jesus and you're so excited, is, is that what he's talking about here? Or is he possibly referring to something else? And I think that's an important question to answer. In the opening message of the series, I talked about how the book of Revelation was a part of a set of writings that came from a similar author and community of faith in New Testament times. That the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, that the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation all are associated with the same author, with the same community of faith. And because of that, I talked about how there were some common themes that run through all of these books, that, that, that thread that tied them all together. And I shared that because... When we understand this, when we understand that that is what's happening here, it gives us a window into understanding what Jesus is saying here. And so in the writings of John, 
you may have noticed that love is the central theological theme. Love. I mean, there's one that we all, I've probably, if we grew up in the church, could quote from a very early age, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, you might be like me. I learned it in the King James, so it's hard for me to say it outside of that, but that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, Jesus was sent to this earth to be our Savior because of love. In John 13.1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or some translation says he showed them the full extent of his love. It's the point just before he kneels down before them and he does the unthinkable of washing their feet, demonstrating that ultimate love for one another means being humble and serving and giving yourself for one another. Sacrifice. In 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus laid down his life for others. We lay down our lives for others. Love in John's writings, all through, all of the writings is about sacrificing to the point of giving one's life for someone else. In 1 John 4, 19, why do we do it? We love because he first loved us. What Jesus is talking about here, I believe, when he references first love, is much bigger than losing the zeal that they had as new believers. They have forsaken, they have abandoned, they have left behind what it truly means to love one another. They have forgotten how to love each other. It's interesting. They are holding up the name of Jesus with all diligence. They're not willing to compromise the truth that they believe. They're working hard to the point that they are suffering and they're tired. They're sacrificing and they are protecting the truth to the point of persecution. But it's not enough because they've lost their love for one another. They are doing all of those amazing things, but they have lost their love for one another, because you can't truly love Jesus without loving others. You can't love Jesus without loving others. All the effort and sacrifice and perseverance in the world will never replace loving others. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now what's ironic here is that Ephesus, the church we're looking at, the the church that is in the midst of an intervention, a church that's being called out for losing its ability and, and practice of loving one another, was once a church that its reputation, it was renowned for its love for one another. 
25 years before this was written, Paul wrote a letter to them in Ephesians 1 and in 15 and 16. This is what he said. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and what? Your love for all God's people. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It was their strong faith and their love for each other that defined them. That was their, you know, next to Ephesus in the dictionary was love and faith. But somewhere along the way, it got lost. Love for one another is the indicator according to Jesus, of a genuine relationship with him. And in the case of the church in Ephesus, Jesus said, it's missing. It's missing. Thirdly, action. Earlier I said we've defined an intervention as an occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address a critical issue. And so here we have Jesus calling out the church in Ephesus. He's confronted this church with truth. He's put a mirror in front of them, and he's calling them out because of their lack of love for one another. But it doesn't end there. Because it's not enough that he knows the truth about them. That's important, but it's not enough. They need to take action now to bring change. Because intervention is always ultimately about truth and love that brings change. Otherwise, if it doesn't bring change, it's just an opportunity for criticism and exposure. Unless there's change, an intervention fails. And so Jesus' agenda here is more than just criticizing them, more than just condemning them. He calls them to action because he wants them to change. They need to change. And so he says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Think back. Reflect on earlier times. Step back from your present reality and get a perspective on what's happening in your life so that you can see where you are today in comparison to where you used to be. Because before change can come, they had to become aware of where they are, where they used to be, and where they need to be. Secondly, he says... Repent. Literally interpreted means to walk a new road, to go in a, to change direction, to stop going where you've been going and go somewhere else. They've gotten off on the wrong road. They've lost sight of the importance of some critical things. And Jesus is saying, guys, it's time to turn around. It's time to, you know, recalculate. It's not enough to simply see the truth of where they are. That's important, but it's not enough. They need to take the necessary steps. They need to make the necessary changes. So he says to them, 
do the things you did at first. Start by loving Jesus and loving others. Get back to the simplicity of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus where you love him and your love for him causes you to love others in a way you never could have before. And then he tells them, if you're willing to do that, there's going to be a reward. And the reward is going to be the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life is first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. It's in the center of the Garden of Eden. And in that center, there are two trees. There's the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were instructed by God that they could eat from the tree of life, but, but they couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge symbolized eternal life. It symbolized the presence of God, being with God, relationship with God, living eternally with God. In Genesis 3, we witness the disobedience of Adam and Eve, resulting in sin now dominating and breaking God's creation. And in Genesis 3.22, they're punished for it. And they're banished from the tree of life. They can no longer eat of the tree of life. They can no longer, you know, they can no longer have spiritual life. They can no longer have even eternal physical life. They're going to die. They're going to suffer. They're going to have pain. And so Jesus says, the reward of repentance, the reward of seeing where you are and turning it around and getting back to what is most important will earn you the right. You see, in the kingdom of God, there's no entitlement. You know? No, you have to, there's things you have to do. And he says, you got to repent if you want to eat of the tree of life. Jesus is saying the reward of repentance is eternal life. That's the reward. What he's saying is, listen, I've reversed the curse. I've reversed the curse. And those who hear my words and those who see their own reality and those who repent of their wrong will be overcomers, will be victorious, and their reward will be eternal life. Three applications that I would like to draw from our scripture today. First is dedication. Folks, the truth is, Jesus knows us as individuals and as a church better than we even know ourselves. And he is present here. I know we say that, but I want you to really think about that this morning. Jesus is present here. He's walking among us. He knows us. He's familiar with every detail. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're thinking. He knows our intentions. He knows everything about us. And with that in mind, I wonder if I were to invite Jesus to the pulpit at this moment and say, Jesus, what would you like to say to us? What would Jesus applaud us on? The fact that he knows so much about us, what would Jesus applaud us on if he were conducting an intervention right here at Evangel today? What would Jesus be saying to us? Now, I can only presume to know what he would, you know, what he'd like about us. But most weeks I stand here presuming to know what, what he'd want you to hear, so I'll just do it again this morning. 
I think he would applaud us on the investment we've made in trying to become an authentic, supportive, and caring community. We haven't mastered it, but it matters to us. And you only have to be here for a little while to experience it to some degree. I think he'd give us a good score. Maybe not an A, but a good score. I think he would applaud the value that we place on everybody that's in this family, from the youngest to the oldest, even when you turn 90. That we're a family. A family that values the contribution that every generation brings. A family that celebrates diversity, a family that embraces culture and cultures. I think he would applaud how we care about our community outside these walls. That we feed the hungry, that we help those who are seeking housing and assistance, that we're engaged in in rescuing those who are trapped in bondage literally and spiritually. I think he would applaud our passion for his work around the world and our support for those who sacrificially serve to invest their lives in people that most of us will never meet this side of heaven. I think he would applaud the value we place on his word, on his presence, on prayer. I think he would applaud that we work hard, we make sacrifices, we give generously, and we're willing to make difficult decisions. I believe there's a lot about this community of faith that brings Jesus joy. And if he were speaking to us today, I think there is much that he would celebrate. Because we're dedicated. Secondly, substitution. Even though there's much about EPC that brings Jesus joy, I am equally as sure that there is much that he would address in our church and in our personal lives. And so I'm going to start now calling things out in your individual lives. No, I'm just kidding. As the Spirit leads me. I've been in those services, by the way, as have some of you. We're not perfect people. Ours is not a perfect church, led by a perfect pastor or leaders or otherwise. We're broken at best. Flawed. Just like the church in Ephesus. And like the church in Ephesus, sometimes our greatest strength can lead to our greatest weakness. Folks, Ephesus was sound doctrinally. They had correct teaching. They lacked tolerance for false teachers. And while these are commendable traits, that type of environment can often create a climate of legalism. In a church that is strong doctrinally, beliefs and works can easily become a substitute for love. Hear me. In a church where beliefs and works are elevated and strong doctrine is elevated above all, it can easily become an environment that substitutes these things for love. And without realizing it, we can become more passionate about issues, about being right, about what we believe, about condemning what we believe to be wrong, about condemning the people we believe to be wrong, then we are about loving people 
as Jesus has called us to love. As I observe the North American church culture, I believe that we have lost the value of loving people the way Jesus intended us to love people. I believe we have. I believe we have bought into the belief that, is not, that it is not possible to stand in uncompromising truth while at the same time love people like Jesus desires. We tend to choose one over the other. And the result is that we are either, you know, there's a doctrinal drift and we get away from truth or there's a relational drift and we get away from love. I believe that we've confused our role with God's. I don't know about you, but some days I play God. I forget whose role is, belongs to whom. We act as if it's our responsibility, or I'm sorry, we act as if it's his responsibility, God's, to love everybody, because God is love and God loves everybody, and it's our job to judge the authenticity of their spirituality and determine if they are worthy or not of God's love. Now, might I suggest that it's the opposite? (laughs) It's our job to love everybody, And it's God's job to judge the authenticity of their spirituality and determine if they're worthy or not. But see, we get it mixed up. Our job is simply to love. Now, my name suggests as well that God is the only one who truly knows a person's heart. Only God has the right to determine if someone is worthy where someone is accepted, and our responsibility is simply to love people the way Jesus has called us to love. I'm going to let God sort the rest of that out because I'm pretty busy, and I don't have time to determine whether you're going to heaven or hell. Not my job. I suspect that I have buried some people that have had glowing results, and they didn't end up where we thought they were going only to find out later that that person has some significant things in their lives that nobody knew about. And we've also buried some people that we thought was the worst of sinners, and right now, they're with Jesus. Not my job. Not my job. I believe that we need, more than anything in the day that we are living in, is a church community filled with people who genuinely Love others, both within the church community and the community outside the walls. A place where people are encouraged, not criticized. Because next to that word criticized in the dictionary is also a nice picture of the church. We've mastered it. A place where people feel valued, like they matter. A place where people go out of their way to really get to know each other and to build relationships. A place where we hold each other up when you don't have the strength to stand on your own. Where we hold each other accountable because we really care about each other. And I can't bear to see you go down a road that destroys your life because I love you too much. Not because your sin makes me self-righteous. A place where people pray for us. Pray with us, encourage us, where those who have give so those who don't can have. 
place where it's safe, safe to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. Truth. Truth. Regardless of what the truth is. Not a convenient truth. Not a truth the way I've figured it out in my head. No, the truth. Like the church in Ephesus, first love for others is something we might need to work on. There's a lot that he would applaud here. There's a lot that he would tell us we have to work on. Because nothing can substitute love. Finally, location. There are times in life where we know exactly where we are. I don't just mean physically. I mean spiritually, emotionally. We know where we are. I've been snowshoeing twice with my family or with my wife. I grew up doing that, but in recent years, we did it as a family a few years back on a winter vacation. We rented the snowshoes at the place we were staying. They said, just go across the street. The woods are there. There was no marked trail. There was no map. We just started out. I'm a bayman. I grew up in the woods and whatever. I'm walking this family of five. We're trekking through the woods. And it's not long before I realize I don't have a clue where I am. Jen's asking, do you know where you are? Of course. What kind of question is that? I own my own snowshoes. How can you even ask that question? Liz comes up to me and says, you don't have a clue, do you? I said, no, I don't. There are times like that where we have no idea where we are. We're just lost. The second time was Monday of this week. Jen thought it was a good idea to do a 90-minute snowshoe outing adventure. I personally think going from couch potato to 90 minutes on snowshoes is a bit of a stretch. But we did it. And the trail was marked. Little red ribbons all along the way. They gave us a map. A lot of the areas were groomed and looked after. I mean, it was, it was an Ontario outing. I mean, really, right? Come on, let's face it, right? That's how you do it in the center of the universe. You groom trails. You don't woods it. And so we're, we're doing that, and we reached the halfway point, and we took out the map, and I said to Jen, we're halfway. And she said, no. Oh, no. We've been walking for two hours. It's only 90 minutes. It's just around the corner. I said, Jen, we've been walking for 45 minutes. We're only halfway. It was a tough moment. There are times in life that, like that, we think... We know where we are. We think that we're, we, you know, we're aware of our surroundings, but, but we're really not there at all. And so sometimes we know where we are. Sometimes we have no idea. And sometimes we think we do, but we're wrong. The point is this. If we're going to get back to the place that Jesus wants us to go to, it begins with understanding where you're currently located. Each of us is located somewhere along this journey of life. Each of us have gotten off track to some degree in some places, some of us more than others. 
And unless we can clearly see where we are, who we are, what we have done, and how we have drifted, it is not possible to return to the place that Jesus is calling us to. Repentance begins with understanding where you are, how off track you have come, that you need to turn around and walk in a different direction. Repentance begins with remembering. The prodigal son's journey home began in that moment in the pig pen as he remembered the life and what that life was like when he was once in his father's home. Our ultimate goal as followers of Jesus is to inherit eternal life. We want to avail of the promises that someday we're going to enter into the paradise of God and partake of the tree of life and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I would suspect if that's not your goal, then you might want to rethink your goals. But we got to realize that that promise is tied to repentance, remembrance, and change. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. Like the church in Ephesus, Jesus is calling evangel this morning. And all of us who sit here as individuals to remember the height from which we have fallen and to start the trek back spiritually to rediscovering that place again. If we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we must begin by first hearing the message that God has for us, his church, and his message is this, get back to and rediscover first love. If we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we must begin by heeding Jesus' call to love people like he loves people. People will not hear the good news if they do not experience our genuine love for them. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. I know it's a little later this morning. That's the way it is when we take time to gather around the communion table. It's not an apology. It's just stating a fact. You need to go, we understand. But our prayer team is going to come and we're going to spend a few moments this morning praying for those who come today who need prayer. And maybe you're not one of those people this morning and that's great. We don't wish that on you. But I want to encourage you this morning that even if you're not one of those people, this is an opportune time for you to be still, to hear what the Spirit is saying to you this morning? What is the Jesus who is in this place, who knows you better than anybody, saying to you specifically this morning in light of this scripture? And for you to reflect on that and allow God by his spirit to work in your heart on it. Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that you do reign that you are the one who ultimately has the final say, the final word. 
And Lord, I just thank you that you care enough about us to build up the things and applaud the things that are good and to lovingly point out the areas that are of concern. And as we leave this place today, as you said to John, may we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to us as individuals. Lord, that's our desire. May we reflect on what we've heard. May we see it in light of our own lives. And may we find our way to where it is you want us to be. Watch over and be with us as we leave, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.